Hey, and welcome to a very special edition of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and uh, this week I'm going to share a recording of Design for Cognitive Bias, which is a talk I gave at UX Copenhagen a few weeks back. Um, And this is exactly what it sounds like. I'm going to talk a lot about cognitive bias, and I'm going to talk about different um, web design or content strategy sort of approaches you can take to mitigate some of that bias. Um, You heard a little bit of what we've talked about on the podcast before, but actually talk about some uh, new stuff as well. Um, Hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here is me talking at UX Copenhagen. Uh, So today I'd like to talk about designing for cognitive bias using our mental shortcuts for good instead of for evil. And um, my name is David Dillon Thomas. I'm the principal of content strategy at Think Company. We're an experienced design firm in Philadelphia. And um, uh, you can reach me at movie underscore pundit or learn all sorts of crazy stuff about me at davidillonthomas.com. But the relevant thing is that I have a podcast called The Cognitive Bias Podcast, which is about cognitive bias. It's very imaginatively titled. And uh, the reason I kind of started doing this podcast is because of a talk I saw by Iris Bonnet about gender equality by design. It's an amazing talk uh, from South by Southwest. You can find it on YouTube. I highly recommend you check it out. One of the many brilliant insights she had was that pattern recognition governs a lot of implicit bias when it comes to gender, when it comes to race. And what I mean by that is, let's say I'm hiring a web developer. And in my head, based on life experience, based on television, based on all the media, when I hear the words web developer, image of a white dude pops in my head. So if I look at a resume and I see a name that is not a white dude, appears to be a woman, appears to be an ethnic person, even if I am not explicitly misogynistic, even if I don't hate black people, I will instinctively suddenly look at that resume a little bit differently, simply based on pattern recognition. Now, the fact that pattern recognition could have that huge of an impact on something as crucial as racial and gender divides made me think I need to learn as much as I can about cognitive bias. So I did. This is the rational wiki list of cognitive biases. There are well over 100 of them. And I decided I will quite simply look at one of these a day. So I'd pick one, and for about a year, one a day, I'd Google it, I'd learn about it, next day, move on to the next one. This inevitably turned me into the guy who would not shut up about cognitive bias. (laughs) And those of you who have talked to me at the conference know this is still true. And uh, one of my friends eventually turned to me and said, you've got to turn this into a podcast. Um, And after about the fifth time of her telling me this, I went ahead and did it. Now, it's important here to actually level set and say, well, what is cognitive bias? And at the end of the day, cognitive bias is just a set of shortcuts that our mind takes to get through the day. Because the fact of the matter is the number of decisions you have to make in a day is staggering, easily on the order of trillions. Even right now, I am deciding where is my gaze gonna go? What words am I gonna say? What direction am I gonna walk in? If I were to sit down and think carefully about each of those decisions, I would quite simply dissolve into a puddle of goo in front of you. I would not get anything done ever. So we have these shortcuts that get us through the day. And for the most part, they are healthy. For the most part, they are helpful. But under certain circumstances, they can cause harm to ourselves and to others. Now, a fairly harmless one, and I'm gonna give you a few examples of cognitive biases here. A fairly harmless one is called the illusion of control. Imagine you're going to a craps table. 
and you have the die, and you want a high number when you roll that die. So what you do is you roll it really hard. But if you need a low number, you'll roll it really gently. Now, every rational thinking person in this room knows it makes no difference how hard or soft you throw the die. It's random chance. You have zero control over the outcome of this, but your mind likes the idea of control, and so it behaves differently. It likes the thought of having that control even when it's an illusion. Another example is reactance, which is by far the wackiest cognitive bias I've ever seen, and I'll tell you why. Reactance is basically the you-cannot-tell-me-what-to-do do bias. So if you put up a sign that says, please do not write on this wall, and you put up a sign on a different wall that says, under no circumstances should you write on this wall, guess which wall will get the most graffiti? This manifests in very weird ways. So there's an experiment where you put a bunch of candy at the end of a hallway, lots of different brands of candy. And the subject walks down the hall, chooses three pieces of candy, any three they want. Now, in a normal hallway, they will go down and pick three of their favorite candy bars, same brand. But what you do is, you also have a group that's walking down a weirdly narrow hallway. When they get to the end of the hallway, they will almost inevitably pick three different brands, even if two of those brands they don't particularly like. Why? By Introducing a narrow hallway, you have suggested to them, you have primed them to feel they have no choice, that their control is being taken away, their freedom is being taken away. So they react and exercise their freedom the only way they can in that situation by picking three different candy bars, no matter what anyone thinks. We are so weird. <laughs> this is one you've probably heard of, confirmation bias. And it is exactly what you think it is. You get an idea in your head, and you will simply go and look for information to confirm what you think, and if you see anything that contradicts it, you will say fake news. So, one of the most powerful examples of this happens during the Iraq war, when the lead-up to the war, the premise was there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, this is why we have to go in. Over time, it came out that, nope, not so much. However, even when the President of the United States said, we have found no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the number of people who believed that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq went up. This is how powerful confirmation bias is, and we'll be coming back to it later. The thing to understand about these biases is that they're extremely difficult to combat. First of all, odds are you don't even know that you have them. There is, in fact, a bias that is called the bias blind spot that is all about how you don't know you have a bias, but you suspect that everyone else does. Part of the problem is that 90% of cognition is happening below the threshold of conscious thought. If anyone ever asks you why you do something, the only honest answer is, how the hell should I know? Scientists, by the way, consider this a conservative estimate. There are plenty of scientists out there who believe it's higher. Even if you do know, and this is the really scary part, even if you do know about the bias, odds are you will still commit the bias. There's a bias called anchoring, where let's say I ask you to write down the last two digits of your phone number, and then I have you bid on an item like a bottle of wine. If the last two digits of your phone number are low, you will bid lower for that bottle of wine. If the last two digits of your phone number are higher, you will bid higher. Now, if I tell you in advance, hey, there's this thing called anchoring, and you're gonna bid weirdly based on your phone number, so don't do that. 
You still do it. It gets worse. If I say, I will pay you cash money to not do this bias, you'll still do it. Now, why should we care about this as designers? Well, there's a concept of choice architecture. Dan Ariely likes to demonstrate it by talking about a refrigerator. And you open the refrigerator, and there's some junk food here, and the crisper where all the vegetables are is down here, right? That suggests a certain choice architecture. You're more likely to go for the junk food. If we just moved the crisper to the middle of the fridge, that's a better choice architecture for better health outcomes. Because we're lazy, first thing we see is the vegetables. We're more likely to pick them. As designers, we create environments for decision-making. Think about the decisions your user needs to make. And now think about how people make decisions. If we care about good user experience, the more we know about how people actually make decisions is going to make us more effective as designers. And there are, in fact, design choices we can make that can curb some of these bad influences within cognitive bias. One example is blind resumes. Are people familiar with the term blind resumes? Okay, so this is a really important concept. Remember before I was talking about pattern recognition? So, who would you rather hire? You've got John Smith, who's got these qualifications, and Melissa Smith, who's got those qualifications. Oh wait, they're the exact same qualifications. And in studies, People will, especially if it's a traditionally male-dominated field, opt for John over Jane even though they have the exact same qualifications. With that in mind, who cares about the name anyway? How is the name actually helping me make a hiring decision? What is crucial about that when I'm deciding who am I going to interview? And from a content strategist perspective, it's a simple signal voices noise versus noise problem, right? The signal is, what are your qualifications? What is your experience? The noise actually is, what is your name? Where did you go to college, right? All these things that are actually distracting me from what's valuable about you in this context. Now, the city of Philadelphia, for their developers, hired uh, based on uh, blind resumes. They were trying to instigate this as a pilot program. And they discovered two things very quickly. One, the best way to blind a resume is to literally print it out and have an intern who has no stake in the hiring process redact it by hand with a magic marker. The second thing they discovered is that as soon as they were interested in a candidate, the very next thing they would do, which is what you typically do in America when you're, you're hiring a developer, is uh, go to GitHub and check out their profile on GitHub. Now, guess what happened the second that GitHub page loads? I see your name, I see your image, I see all this identifying information about you, right? The whole experiment is ruined. So what they did was they wrote a script that as soon as that GitHub profile loads, blocks out all the identifying information. And just to complete the circle, they then posted that script to GitHub so others could use it. Cognitive fluency is a concept that has to do with how we decide whether or not something is too difficult to do or looks easy to do. And a lot of it simply comes down to, is it easy to read? If I see a set of instruction that looks easy to read, I will assume whatever it's talking about is also easy to do. By the same token, if something is hard to read, I will actually assume the task, whatever it is, is difficult to do, and I'm less likely to do it. So I love me some pancakes. 
I will happily make any of you pancakes if we have the ingredients around. Um, these are instructions for making pancakes. And the text is kind of small, it's kind of blocky. That looks kind of difficult. I don't know if I really even want to try this. Now you get the exact same instructions with images and smaller chunks of text. That, that actually looks pretty easy. I, I bet that's easy to do. And keep in mind, I haven't read the instructions yet. I'm just looking at it. Oh, a video? And it's short? Oh, this must be really easy. I bet it'd be really easy to make these pancakes. Now, it's important when it comes to things like government services that people need to sign up for or taxes that they need to pay. Would you rather fill out this terrible-looking, intimidating form? Or would you rather go through this friendly flow, one screen at a time, with beautiful graphics that's taking you to the exact same end? Which of these two statements do you believe to be true? There are 55 African nations in the United Nations. There are 53 African nations in the United Nations. How many people vote for 55? Interesting. How many people vote for 53? Okay, you're both wrong, it's 54. But in typical experiments, and I think it's biased here just because I've made it a little obvious, in typical experiments, people will go for 55. Why? Because 55 is easier to read. We believe it's, if it's easy to read, it's also more true. And it gets worse than that. If it rhymes, we think it's true. <laughs> now, I'm very curious how many people here recognize this phrase. Okay. So in the States, the O.J. Simpson trial was a very big deal. I have absolutely no idea how much this translated overseas. But long story short, there was a football celebrity, television celebrity named O.J. Simpson back in the 90s. He was accused of murder, was on trial. And at one point, gloves that were found at the crime scene, he was asked to actually put on during the trial, and they did not fit. The defense attorney, during his closing argument, said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, right? This is powerfully convincing. Even though it seems silly to rhyme, we actually think it's more true if it does. Now, part of this has to do with uncertainty. Our minds don't like uncertainty. And if something's difficult to remember, it's easier for our minds to simply dismiss it. But things that rhyme are easy to remember. Things that are bold are easy to see. They're easily accessible. If, I can get to the, if my mind can get them to them easily, I'm more comfortable with them. And it's just easy to believe those things are true. Now again, why does it really matter what sort of tricks you can do to make things seem more or less true? This is why. In America, African Americans, by and large, do not believe information about health that comes from the government. Now, there is a whole other presentation to be had about why there is legit concern on the part of African Americans about information that the government is handing about health. But, taking that as a caveat for now, you see from the survey, the government usually tells the truth about major health issues like HIV AIDS, only 18% said strongly or slightly agree. And that's down from about 36% over 10 years earlier, which was not a good place to start with. So, if I am needing to convince you of information that could save your life, any trick I have in the book is going to be a step in the right direction. Let's talk about how Amazon fights recency. Recency is a phenomenon where if I give you a list of 10 things to remember, odds are you're probably going to remember the first thing on the list and maybe the last thing on the list. Order matters. So, when they were evolving how they presented reviews, at first, the most recent review would appear first. Great, except that because it was first, 
In your mind, you thought, this must be the most authoritative review, which of course it isn't. It's just the most recent one. But that's not how you saw it. So they invented the concept of helpfulness. How helpful is this review? And bubble up to the top the most helpful review. It's a little bit better. However, if it was a positive review, you would simply assume, oh, this must be a good product. And if it was negative, the reverse. So they added one more tweak. They put the most positive, the most helpful positive review and the most helpful negative review side by side, giving them equal visual weight, which to your mind meant they had equal authority. You had to consider both sides of this argument because the page was telling you, the hierarchy was telling you, the recency was telling you, this is how I need to think about this product. The bandwagon effect is uh, basically going along with the crowd. So while we don't like to be told what to do, we will conform if like 15 other people do the same thing. And literally, there's an experiment where you show people these, this slide here. You basically show them one line and say, okay, of these other three lines, A, B, or C, which one is the same? Now, any right-thinking person would immediately grok, oh, A, right? The problem is, I'm gonna put you in a room with 12 other people, and before you give your answer, they're gonna give their answer, and they're gonna say, B is the correct answer. So when I get to you and I ask you, which line do you think is the same, you say, B? This happens over and over again because the pressure of seeing all these other people say something different makes it very difficult to say, and, and you start to assume, oh, did I get the question wrong? Am I not seeing this right? Do they know something I don't? Now the trick with the bandwagon effect is that if I put one or two other people in that room who say, yeah, it's A, you now feel encouraged. You now have permission to say A as well. And typically that's what happens if one or two other confidants are there with you. Now, what's important about this is if you are creating a platform where people need to be able to dissent, where you're trying to avoid conformity of thought, whether it's in a brainstorming session or whether it's literally in an online platform, you must be sure that the dissenters have line of sight to each other or that they have no line of sight to what everyone else is saying. This is why often in brainstorming sessions, you have people write down their ideas separately and then aggregate them so that you can avoid the hippo, as we were talking about yesterday, raising their hand first, and then everyone has to say the same thing. The most dangerous cognitive bias I'm aware of is the framing effect. The framing effect is very simply how I phrase something, right? So if I say, would you rather have beef that is 95% lean or 5% fat? Well, 95% lean, of course it's pretty clear that 95% lean and 5% fat are the exact same thing. But if you see this in a store and a big sign says 95% lean, you're more likely to go to it if a big sign says 5% fat. It's how I framed the question. It makes you think about it differently. Now this is all good and well when we're talking about beef, but what if I'm saying, should we go to war in April or May? See what I did there? We're no longer discussing whether or not we should go to war. We're just haggling over when. Or more recently, frankly, should we arm teachers in schools? What are we not talking about now? Gun control. I framed the argument in a way that gets it where I want you to think, rather than where you want to think. So, what about our own cognitive biases? There's a couple that I'd like to challenge us to challenge. One is confirmation bias. Told you to come back. So, 
The scientific method was invented in part to combat confirmation bias. And for a long time, I had a fundamental misunderstanding of what the confirmation or what the uh, scientific method actually was. I thought it was, oh, I have a hypothesis, I'm going to test the hypothesis, and if I'm right, yay, it's a law, and if I'm wrong, okay, I'm going to go back and try to figure out what I got wrong. It's actually much more rigorous than that. I'm going to come up with a hypothesis, and if I'm right, great, and everyone else tries it and they get the same result, positive result, great, but now I have to spend the rest of my life trying to prove myself wrong. I have to think, if I'm wrong, what else might be true? Now I have to go and try to prove that to be true. That's the true scientific method. And it's something I think we miss when we design solutions. Once we get to an answer we like, we tend to stop looking. And there are all sorts of economic pressures why this might be so, but we may very well be leaving good design on the table by not probing further. And here's why. If I were to give you an uh, interface that had two, four, six, and I said, okay, here's the deal. Plug whatever number you want into that last slot and then hit a button, and I will tell you if that number fits the pattern. Your job is to guess the pattern. And keep in mind, you can put as many numbers in there as you like. Doesn't matter. So if you're like me, and I've taken this test, you put an eight, press the button, and it says, congratulations, that fits the pattern. Would you like to try again? If you're like me, you say, nope, got it. And then I type in even numbers. That's the pattern. Press the button, it says, no, it's not. You're wrong. Why was I wrong? Because I never tried this. The pattern was quite simply, each number is higher than the number that came before it. But when I found an answer I thought was right, I stopped. I didn't try to prove myself wrong. And because I missed that step, I missed the more elegant design solution. The other bias I want us to challenge ourselves around is called deformation professionnelle. This is a bias that basically, basically you assume that you view the world entirely through the lens of your own profession. So the most horrific example of this, uh, one of the most horrific, um, is uh, the photographers, the paparazzi who ran Lady Diana off the road. In that moment, they truly believed they were doing their job. And in fact, Purely in the context of their job, they were doing an outstanding job. They were getting a very difficult photograph that would fetch them lots of money. In terms of being human beings, they were doing a terrible job. When former police commissioner of Philadelphia took the job, he started asking his officers, what do you think your job is? And mostly they would say, we believe it is to enforce the law. And he said, it seems a fair enough answer. But what if I were to tell you that your actual job is to protect civil rights? Now, that encompasses enforcing the law, but it's a bigger job than that. But that larger definition of the job allows that deformation professionnelle to include something more human. It gives the officers permission to be more human. And what I submit to you is that our jobs are harder than we think. It is bigger than design the thing. And what I want us to do is to think about what definition can we give our jobs that gives us permission to be more human. So we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable 
of being conquered. This is a quote from Martin Luther King from over 50 years ago, and yet it feels strangely relevant in this moment. But this is why I challenge ourselves to think of what is that definition of being a designer that gives us permission to be more excellent to each other. Thank you. <laughs> and keep talking for a couple hours. <laughs> I'll be cool? blathering all through lunch. But by the way, I realized there's one thing I forgot to tell you. So I told you about um, the uh, 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 framing effect bias, and I said it's the most dangerous thing in the world, but I forgot to tell you there is a design fix that most of you probably have. How many people here are bilingual or more? Okay, you have a secret weapon. If you think about those decisions, like the 95% lean in another language that's not your native language, you beat it because you have to think about every word carefully. Whereas if you hear it in your own language, it's like, oh yeah, sure, 95% lean. So it was a whole bit. I tried to talk French, but it's gone now. <laughs>